This recording is copyrighted and is licensed and released under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. This recording is freely released for any personal use, including duplication and sharing in its entirety, and provided that it is not used for commercial sale or used in any context other than the educational context within which it was created, and that credit of its authorship is attributed to the copyright owners with links back to the website www.embraining.com. Please note that this recording is intended for educational purposes only and is not rendering any medical, psychological, financial, legal or other professional advice. Any personal actions taken based on this recording is at the sole discretion and responsibility of the listener. Hi, I'm Grant Suzalu. Did you know the latest research findings in neuroscience have shown that we all have three complex and functional brains, one in our head, one in our heart and one in our gut? Our book, Embraining, describes the scientific evidence for this as well as a suite of powerful yet practical methods for harnessing the capacities of your three brains to achieve greater wisdom in your daily decisions and in your actions. With MBIT, you can live more fully, more powerfully, and much more joyfully than ever before. I'm talking today with Cindy Mason, a researcher in artificial intelligence and a number of, of other fields, actually, looking at some of your uh, research papers. Cindy, you've, you've got quite a, a wide background and you're working at Stanford Research Institute and UC Berkeley at the moment. I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about your background and your work so that we could then get into a deeper discussion about what it means for human-level emergent AI and the sorts of work that is coming out in the very near future and the links of your work to how we might directionalize AI to be a wiser form of AI in society. Okay, thank you. Um, so my background started out working at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, which was uh, where my t- PhD thesis was, and I was working on technologies to help verify treaties to regulate nuclear weapon testing. So I've always had a kind of, uh, from the get-go, interest in pro-human uh, applications of technology When I graduated, I went to work at NASA and I worked on some robotics there. I worked on some of Rod Brooks's robots in a simulated lunar and simulated Mars environment. And then, so that's where I first started working on robots, uh, embodied robots as opposed to like software agents. A software agent is something kind of like Siri in, in a practical everyday sense, but generally it's, it's the software that engages, uh, in a robot. And after that, then I went to work at Stanford in the School of Medicine. I know it sounds like I've done different things, but there actually, I think, the thread that links all these things is my interest in people. So I I worked on speech recognition in the uh, speech interfaces, actually, in the quadriplegic uh, research lab. And and then after that, I, I, I went back to Berkeley. So... Back to Berkeley being that's where I did my, my thesis work was at Lawrence Livermore Lab jointly with UC Berkeley and UC Davis. It was kind of a special program that was for interdisciplinary studies. And then after I left, so I left Berkeley, I was there, that's where I actually started doing emotion-oriented programming. There were a number of students who committed suicide on campus. And I became very aware of, first of all, not only the what I perceived was a sort of lack of emotional awareness of not just the people around me, but especially I was in the computer science department there. And these are the people who are considered the top brains, if you will, at least in the United States for these fields that are being unleashed on applications like phones and cars and all the technologies we see. So it was very concerning to me that, there was a kind of numbness or a kind of, um, I don't want to say mindlessness, but, you know, because I think of the mind and the heart together. Mm. Um, but that's actually when I started looking at anything I could find that had to do with emotions and the relationship to cognition. And, uh, yeah, and um, I, I didn't find anything in my field. So, um, but what I did find was that if I stepped outside really outside and just looked where the knowledge about emotion was. There were thousands of years of understanding about the relationship between emotion and everything 
Okay, yeah. in China, in Tibet, in India, yeah. in Japan, um, outside the West, we, we have a philosophical divide between how we see thinking in, in culture. And that affects how we do science. And that affects artificial intelligence. Yes. So it all comes down to, in a way, I mean, I, well, I don't want to get too distracted just to say that at Berkeley is where I started the emotion-oriented programming language which was, at the time, this was in 1998, the first step towards building anything in an AI system that smacked of emotion. Yes, yeah, the really leading edge. Well, there was a paper uh, by Aaron Sloman that was published in the mainstream AI community in the U.S., but it was a, it was a solo paper, and, yeah. you know, it just wasn't... It just what people didn't listen to me either. When when I first created my paper on emotional oriented programming, I took it to my department chair. He patted me on the head and said, "That's cute." Yeah. You know, it was just yep. you know, yep. different kind of thinking. And yeah, um, yeah I did my original undergrad in physics and uh, and computing, computing science, and then did my masters by research in applied physics on pattern recognition. And so, and, and this was in the late 80s, early 90s. So I know exactly what you're talking about in the, those departments, the, the people, the, the way it was treated and the sort of orientation towards it. It was very cerebral. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, the, the aspect of bringing emotional heart into it. Like, uh, to me, the, your work, looking at your papers on uh, you know, the emotional programming aspects of it, I think it's, it, it blew me away when I was looking at your work. I mean, wow, this is absolutely spot on from the work that I've been doing more recently on embodied cognition and how so much of what really makes us human is not just based in the head and the importance of emotions to wisdom in intelligence. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, so I could see how in those cultures that very, in Australia, certainly very male dominant, dom- dominated. I think we only had two women in the whole of the department um, and, and they were you know, two students. There were, there were no women researchers or lecturers. It was just uh, such a male-dominated area and emotions were very much not a focus. You know, I can imagine okay. if I'd gone to my supervisor and said, I want, to do that, you know, foc- I want to focus and look at emotional programming, he would have looked at me and said, well, you know, that's a great road to nowhere. Well, I think... To be fair, we have to we have to understand that there are cultures in which we do our work, mm. and there are government institutions that hand out money. That's right, the funding that, and you know, in some sense, define the areas where people can participate with their minds. Yeah, the channels and, in which the water will run down. Well, and and so I was actually very fortunate because. I was fortunate and unfortunate. The same year these students committed suicide at Berkeley, my father also died. And so for my own personal sake, well, so I, he, he left me money. And so I had my what they call fuck you money. Excuse me. <laughs> but, no, really, I didn't have to depend on kowtowing yeah. to, you yeah. know, particulars. Yeah. I could use my, and I think this is something I wish was different for all researchers that they could follow their own curiosities Yes. more easily. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think for sure what we know, the science of emotion has caught up with us and it's wonderful that that it's happening now. You know, to mm. me, I'm it, just so happy I, that that came out, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, it fits so beautifully with what you've been doing in, you know, in the, trying to model human intelligence in computers. The science of compassion coming out of psychology and cognitive science, etc., as, as a really huge field over the last decade or so, really gives that some strength. But I really love your point, that which completely concurs with the work we did in Embit in and Embraining, of how modern neuroscience is starting to validate thousands of years of ancient wisdom traditions who have known about the nature of consciousness and, and the importance of emotion to consciousness and the body etc and how to to interface in thinking and feeling through various physical and uh, mental processes you know psycho-emotional processes so i note that in one of your papers you actually looked at um, one of the buddhist techniques as a model for the structure of the levels of consciousness involved in thinking and feeling 
it was a very important architecture of the mind mm. that I felt was fairly straightforward to map onto uh, computer architectures for robots. So there was there was an existing architecture. Um, we have what you call a cognitive architecture in a robot. You know, you have yep. a software agent, which is the, the program, and then the hardware. So, like, I have a, a little baby robot here I can show you. Um, he, oh, cute. And, and so, but he's not really going to do anything unless he gets some electricity and some pro- software to execute, right? So there is a sense act architecture, which is based on something Rod Brooks came up with, which you can uh, biologically uh, describe insects and simple uh, nervous systems. So there's a, a, a simple a circuit that goes from the sensory input to the reaction. Yep. And then there is in computer science, if we have some artificial intelligence where we explicitly represent a state of mind and we have things like common sense and deduction and inferencing and learning, we have a think component in the architecture. And I actually, uh, I don't know if you'll be able to see this, but I drew this up on the board. So you can see the sense act uh yeah. original component and there's a feedback so it's it's like a, a control cycle where you go from inputting sensory reacting to it and then and just it just repeats like that as an insect moves through or uh, if a robot were to explore a planet um you could have something that's simple and it would be able to generally navigate just by avoiding ob- obstacles for example but you can get trapped. So if we have the thinking to it that takes us to the next level, um, what Vipassana does is Vipassana, which is the mind training practice you referred to, the thousands of year old practice, it has this meta level. And the meta level is the compassionate observation of one's own thoughts. In the original, like if you were to go to a center that teaches these ancient practices, and they exist now all over the world, thankfully. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and there's actually some interesting things to say about those uh, practices, about how they're able to help people come back to, you know, there's a film called Doing Time, Doing Vipassana, which takes some of the most hardened criminals that society just gave up on in India their worst prisoners, um, and they practiced this this training, or they were trained in this practice, I mean, you know, and they became repentant, they became reformed, they became honest, they became caring. It, it changed them. Mm. So that basic architecture of the meta, so you have a level above the basic architecture, which allows you to have... An observation of self. So you have a model of self now. And the architecture for the robot has now a new component. There's a model of self. And when you want to have compassion, you introduce a model of others as well as yourself. Yep. Um, And you can also allow input from other agents, not just the environment. And your world is no longer limited to just the task in front of you. Your world includes others. But there's something really important that has to be included in this. And it's kind of something invisible that the programmer adds. But it's also important for a person who practices meditation, and that is the philosophy. So the philosophy of mind has to do with something Heidegger called Dyson or Dyson. It depends on how you pronounce it, but it's... It's the idea that I have a basic regard for something yep. from a positive place. Yes. And well, actually, people who study Heidegger would say that what it really means is that my experience of the world, my experience of a, an object, exists because of you. Yes, exactly. So these things kind of connect to how you end up programming in the software, which is really trippy. I mean, yeah, know. yeah. As a programmer, I agree. It is. I was looking at one of some of the details in your paper and going, "That is trippy. That is, you know, emotional programming and how you program that in, how you've built that. 
architecture it was it was kind of doing my head in i was thinking how if i had to start how would i even begin to build a you know an emotional programming language that ultimately interfaces down to you know uh, it's an abstraction layer that interfaces down into actual robotics that that takes in sensory information and and does movement it's it's brilliant what you've done i think uh, truly i'm in awe of what you've done actually it's the first steps yes and you know to be to be completely fair, I've had a lot of help. I studied with many brilliant teachers who taught me, you know, like, for example, that Medicine Buddha teaching is explained through a cognitive architecture mm. that describes how our senses are all interdependent. And this is one of the meanings of this notion of everything is connected and there's inter- interdependence. There's a 300-year-old question of whether or not our sense of smell is connected to our sense of sight or whether what we hear is connected to what we see. So if you eliminate one of these senses, what happens? Mm. And our sense of touch is connected to how we move through space. If, if we look at some of these ancient teachings, they actually answer questions that scientists are now looking into. Yeah. It's having the time and, and exposure to the right teachers to be able to have access to that information. So I really feel a lot most days I, I feel like it's a gift that mm-hmm. I've been able to show up for these classes, that my father left me the money, that I, you know, that I got my papers accepted. Yes. You know, that, that people like John McCarthy kept me on even though I was doing weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I bet that is a blessing, right? <laughs> Because in the fullness of time, what your weird stuff is actually you're going to become main, you know, much more mainstream uh, because of the insights from neuroscience that back up you know, the insights that you've been uncovering in your own work you know, and linking up these uh, these ancient wisdom traditions, which are actually quite veridical. They're, they're quite accurate descriptions of human process, but couched with a whole heap of you know, socio, uh, historico, politico stuff from thousands of years ago, right? So they have these myths and metaphors and stuff that um, the terms they're couching because they didn't have the, the scientific terms we have now. Nevertheless, at the pith, you know, at the heart of the teachings is is truth. The, these things work. They're pragmatic. They were they were accurate descriptions of human process. And now with neuroscience, we're just starting to scratch the surface of va- validating, you know, a lot of this work. And I think we're going to validate more because, mm-hmm. because you know, if you practice them, as you know, if you go and practice the various you know, techniques, whether it's Taoist, whether it's Buddhist, uh, whether it's <clears throat> the Ayurvedic traditions of Hinduism, etc. If you go and actually put the time in and practice them, they do get in- effects in your life, in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these effects may be placebo and, and to, due to um, the belief in the technique. And nevertheless, you know, if you average out across a lot of humans doing it, you actually see, and this I, I think over thousands of years happened, um, they pared it down to the nub of stuff that actually works compared to you know, just placebo effects of the power of, of human belief. Though there is obviously some of that in there as well. But that speaks to what you'd need to build into uh, you know, an, an, an agenting system is aspects of that, of what happens in a patterning system that's embodied and, and how brains that think change themselves and the thoughts and beliefs restructure the nature of the thinking system and feeling system. So I, I think it's amazing what you've done. I just love the fact that you know, from a scientific perspective, you're doing something that is very important because you're taking these theories or ideas and then instantiating them into robots, you know, into, into AIs, which if the theory is correct, you will see the emergent behavior that you expect to see. You know, that, that's the sort of work that Edelman was doing with his theory of neuronal group selection and uh, building the, the Darwin series of robots. He's saying if his theories work, and then he instantiates it, you know, and there's a, there's a process in science where this is one way in which we validate theories. If you can take the theory, build something from it, it produces the effect, then it, it does tend to support the idea that the theory has some truthfulness to it, right? And so that's what you're doing. I really love that. You're, you're <laughs> this sense of you know, um, taking metacognition and, and, the, and the importance of going meta, which in uh, the sorts of fields that like uh, neurolinguistics... Uh, the uh, personal development fields that I do a lot of training and work in, you know, the importance of being able to go meta to yourself, you know, to, to create a process of tracking self and self-awarenessing. 
um, mm-hmm. is crucial for increasing levels of personal consciousness. Now, I was, I was say, and, and the fact that you've brought in the, the other aspect of it was that you've looked at state of mind and state of heart, as you say in one of your papers. You know, this, this to me is... To, to read this in a scientific paper in, in the field of AI, to me is heart-opening and mind-blowing that there's someone out there doing this right now. I, I just was was absolutely in awe of your paper, going, oh, wow, I really need to, to uh, interview this wonderful person who's on what I think is the, the leading edge of where we need to be with uh, AI. I think you're a, a, a voice that is so important in the field of AI at the moment. Well, I, I was just thinking about what you were saying about the lining up of the neuroscience uh, with the architectures and uh, computer programming infrastructure. And I was thinking the biology of the, so there's multiple fields that have had these discoveries, not necessarily about um, the brain, but there's been discoveries on the rate of wound healing. Mm-hmm. There, the if you have a relation a close relationship that is where you do a lot of squabbling, uh, you, you know they've they've measured these things that mm. that your wounds don't heal as fast. There's also a shift in um, the immune. The there's so many. There's like a list of these things. I I try to put them in in most of my papers. But another list, another item on the list includes the generation of neural stem cells in a region of the brain called the hippocampus uh, mm. axis, which is where we generate memories. Yes. Our memories are stored. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a practical everyday experience we have. If we have stress, it's harder to remember things. And and the, But I'm back on the brain, so back to the heart. So compassion, love, they're often expressed through gentleness, through touch. It, it can be tone of voice, but... Uh, there's been some amazing studies on touch and and compassionate touch, motherly touch, tenderness. Yes, there has. I've been following some of those studies and using it in some of our trainings. It's wonderful. And and incredible it's, stuff. It's, it's all over the body. Mm. The, the oxytocin that, I mean, when somebody, you know, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. When somebody's, like, sweet to you, okay, yeah. and you trust them, if... You look at what happens from a scientific basis. There's just an incredible like neuroendocrine reaction. There's a nervous system reaction, the neurotransmitters. And oxytocin is, is so um, different than what we thought. It, originally, it was, it was related to breastfeeding and, and birthing. Yes. And we now have found receptor sites for oxytocin almost all over the body, the gonads, the heart. It plays a role in glucose response. Yes. Like diabetes is expected to be in 50% of the people in the United States by 2030. Oh, boy. So in a way, it's not just lining up what we know about the brain with how we design AI. That's a kind of, I think, academic tower. Mm. I, I think the fact that the anatomy of modern society includes so many gadgets. We are editing humanity because of neuroplasticity, because of genetic plasticity, yep. I guess they call that epigene- epigenetic. Then yeah. maybe you have some other words for things that go on with the M brain. But we are constantly reacting to the things in our environment. That's who we are, and and they've shown that the brain changes. Certainly, the immune system reacts to things like laughing. If we if we laugh, um, by the way, if you know any good jokes, uh, please share them. <laughs> um, that's a meta change- joke, right? <laughs> laughing changes our um, our rate of T cell transformation. Yeah, and it's just there's so many reasons why we should have at least an optional architecture that includes this. I'm not saying every you know there's good reasons why not every robot would have okay. these yep. features. Yeah. Okay, John McCarthy's paper the. Uh, robot and the baby makes a great illustration why because sometimes people who have emotions are not rational you know in moments when they really need to stay grounded and think like if the house catches on fire or something like that yeah yeah i actually that's something i wanted to chat to you today about um which was by the way thank you for pointing me me at uh, the story um the robot and the baby because i had not read that previously and i'm a you know a great science fiction 
aficionado. <laughs> I, I read prolifically in the science fiction domain because I think that uh, science fiction authors often are able to point to where society's going and technology's going and, and, and what the social reactions will be. It's you know, great gadunkin, you know, thought experiments that uh, they have. So I, I think it's such an important genre. I hadn't come across that story and I thought it was a, a really you know, fascinating and great story, but it also points to something I wanted to chat to you today about, which was, I know you've put the, you know, the, the notion of you know, the state of heart, the heart into, um, so in a sense, modelling an aspect of what in humans we would say comes from the heart. You know, where do you feel compassion? If you ask people to, to feel love or compassion for somebody they truly deeply care about and then point to where they feel that, no one points to the limbic structures in their head. They all point to their heart region in their chest. And that's because we have a you know, functional, complex, adaptive neural network in the heart region, a heart brain, if you will that the neurocardiologist thing has all of the structure for being a little brain. And that's, as Professor Antonio Damasio points out in his uh, you know, somatic marker theory, saying that the neural networks in the body are part of a re-representational system that the head brain uses as part of its embodied cognition. So we do feel it's, you know, the heart is, a le- as all of the spiritual traditions say, if you're going to learn, um, say, loving-kindness meditation, they t- tell you to focus on your heart and feel the feelings of compassion in the heart. Not just to think the thoughts of compassion, but to feel the feelings, the juicy feelings of compassion in the heart. The heart is a leverage point for change in certain prime functions, certain you know, core competencies. So just like the gut is for, for courage and fear. You know, that's why we say that someone has, who's been very brave, we say they've got gutsy courage. Mm-hmm. Well, in our work, what we saw from the common factor analysis of, of looking at you know, huge divergent sources of evidence for what the core competencies are at head, heart and gut, we saw that the, the competencies divided up uh, into you know, a sort of triune model of uh, autonomic nervous system, either being sympathetic dominant, parasympathetic dominant, or some sort of balanced coherence you know, um, of the autonomic nervous system. So one of the things you're just saying is, you probably don't want, you know, uh, like humans in stressful situations don't do their wisest decision making. If there's a fire, you don't want people get, you know, if they're too stressed, they, some people run back into the fire. Some people do the wrong things during those moments of stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'd want a robot not to get all overly emotional about it and get all totally stressed. And so I think there's a link there between what uh, bringing in that aspect of things like the emotions and the autonomic nervous system, because there's been a huge body over the last five years of research, you know, over 5,000 papers a year over the last five years on just the sympathetic nervous system. Right? It's just it's wow. been a flourishing in neuroscience of um, the work on the ANS. And what the, the so if I gave it a two-minute you know elevator uh, speech on what what seems to be coming out of that literature, it's they're mm. saying that the autonomic nervous system literally drives the bus of the hum, of, of the human. It's linked into a- absolutely everything from cognition to emotion to uh, immune function, etc. Uh, you know, all, all the way to synapsing down onto immune cells, etc. So the I was wondering, w- was there any thoughts on your part as to whether or not uh, you know uh, a truly wise and intelligent AI, especially if we're talking about human level, you know, self-conscious emergent AI, that we'd w- need to model something like the autonomic nervous system into an embodied, you know, uh, AI system. Because if we're bringing in something, you know, uh, like the heart, some, some separate autonomous module that, lo- that, that does aspects of state of heart, do we need some, some sort of autonomic component that manages communication control between these, or these, these separate but interconnected systems um, from the, the perspective of what the autonomic nervous system does as its prime functions? Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people who've who've worked on things sort of anal- I would call them analogous to that just mm-hmm. because it works you know form follows function kind of yep. thing um, yep. there's in, when you look at the sense act uh, architecture one of the things that happens uh, when you when you build the robot like that is there are sensors all over uh, the body mm. And in effect, this, uh, the code, the program code, uh, resides like, it, let's say you have an arm, you know, you're going to have a sensor effector here, a sensor effector here. You could have, in some sense, this collection of sensors and effectors that react 
described as a nervous system. Yep. The autonomic part of it, where you're looking out for yourself, like avoid heat, avoid low temperatures, things like that. Uh, by temperatures, I mean also low anything. So the self-monitoring, yep. you know, autonomic is where we control our breath, right, and our yeah, heart rate. And yeah, yeah. It, it's very much the self-monitoring from a communication control perspective and energy balance. I think the the closest thing to that is in the sensor effector level where you can look out for an object, you know, that you bump into. But it's really no intelligence there, though. Mm. It's very reptilian. Yep. Um, there are some... some I think there are some people in in robotics, maybe down at, at the Mabari, you know, the Monterey Bay Research Aquarium. They're they're doing a lot of amazing robotics underwater. Ah, interesting. And and in fact, there's a project right now. It probably sounds a little creepy and weird, but there's at least three thousand robots in the ocean right now, and they're all connected, and they're very simple. They're, they look like um, a pump, like a pogo stick with water intake. And they go down and they collect water and they do basic analysis on the water, turbidity, oh, salinity, yeah. things like that. And then they send the data up to a satellite that's watching to see what's happening to the oceans. Um, but that sort of sensor effector simplicity, I suppose you could look at it that way. But if you wanted a system to be able to monitor if it's running out of battery power and go plug itself in, yep. uh, that requires more than an autonomic nervous system at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you'd have to recognize the object. And I mean, we sort of know when to fall. We all fall asleep, right? It, it, there's also chemicals. I think the chemical bath is what enables these nerves to function, right? Yeah. So that's where the emotions come in. And in some level, emotions are chemistry. Yeah. And yeah. Candace Pert talks I was about. Just, I was just going to say Candace Pert. That was the, the 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 name in my head with you know the molecules of emotion and her work uh, on on that. So uh, yeah, there's there's obviously lots that if you really want to get human level of operation, that you've got to model more in the human than just you know the neural network of the head. Uh, that was that was one of the things that I wanted to chat to you about in this interview. Is what I'm seeing at the moment with the the you know the, the recent kind of breakthroughs you know over the last uh, 12, 18 months of bringing deep learning into neural networks um, and how it's produced some amazing you know abilities to pattern recognition. And two weeks ago, uh, a deep learning system surpassed human IQ on, you know, IQ tests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's uh, that, that work on the pattern recognition of hand sketches and the deep learning system can recognize more accurately than humans what the hand sketches are. And, and having done <clears throat> visual pattern recognition work in my own research back in the, you know, the 90s, I know how hard it is to, do, to try and do a pattern, visual pattern recognition on, on hand-drawn images. So they've had some cool stuff, and some of the lead, you know, a lot of that work's coming out of um, Canada, and Google have been buying up all of the the, the brains coming out of those groups, and uh, you know, you've got all sorts of interesting things like the Google car, self-driving car, etc. coming. So there's all these sorts of emergent breakthroughs in how smart robots can be by hooking them up to deep learning systems and allowing that self-learning of pattern recognition emergence once you've got the deeper layers in the neural network modeled as a deep learning system. But to me, it looks very much like they're modeling the head brain in effect of a human. And I know like if you look at the work of Edelman's group that they literally are trying to model a human head brain, you know, adding in the hippocampus, etc., into their Darwin series of bots. What they aren't doing is looking at things like you've got with state of heart and bringing compassion in as a fundamental construct in how the AI uh, gets directionalized. <clears throat> and, and when you look at humans that have a, you know, sort of either genetically or environmentally modified brain structures that are disconnected down from the, that somatic, from the heart and gut, so the, you know, the insular and anterior, anterior 
cingulate cortex, ACC, the AC, in the head brain, the, the deep areas that represent uh, the juicy heart and gut information up in the head brain. Uh, it, mm-hmm. Sociopaths have non-normal structures uh, for those. And, and, you know, if you put them subliminally present scary or hor- horrific images to a sociopathic person, um, they won't get an autonomic response. You won't see a heart rate shift or galvanic skin response shift, etc. So they're, they're largely head brains on two legs. They don't have this deeper embodied emotions. So they have labile emotions that are literally just done in the limbic structures in the head brain and not down, uh, you know, Damasio-wise into somatic marker territory. And you see what sort of behaviours emerge out of sociopaths. They're not non-compassionate. They're non-empathic. So I, what are your thoughts on... My worries are that if we build... Uh, you know, self-conscious, human level and beyond I- emergent intelligence in AI systems that don't have a heart, that don't have the modelling of these distributed neural networks like heart and gut that have specific prime functions that have evolved over time to produce the, the you know, when we look at what is is a human that is, we'd say it's the highest expression of a human, um, you usually see deep compassion. Uh, I, I was watching a movie last night about Martin Luther King and you see what, what people are prepared to do in the service of other humans which is like you in your model that's up on the whiteboard and I'll get you to take a, you know, a photo of that and send it to me so I can put it on the website with this interview um, of your whiteboard picture so people can see what you were talking about but that, that modelling of other aspect that you've, you've built into you know, that image and yes. the... And, that's, and both the self-regard and the regard of other built in at a deep level, if you just build a pattern recognition system that can extract patterns out of the, the field of information and, um, and then create patterns from that, which you know, deep learning systems are proving they could do wonderfully well, are, are we going to bootstrap the ultimate sociopath when we get you know, self-consciousness? And, like if, if we have computational density of a human brain, which is supposedly you know, sometime in the next 15 years, 2030, um, on Moore's laws, you know, on the graphs... We and by 2050 we may have computational density of one computer, you know, having computational density of every human brain on the planet. If with sufficient complexity and and all of that, we get the emergence of self-consciousness. But it's just a head brain on two legs. Is this the thing that that you know um, Richard Dawkins is worried about? Is this the the end of humanity? What what do you think? Is this? I see you as a voice for saying. When we build these AI systems, build in the sort of things you're talking about, the state of heart. At the base level, I know it was a sorry. It was a long question, but do you want to speak no. to that a bit? No, you've just painted a picture of a lot of the things going on in the world right now, and a lot of people, like you said, Dawkins and um, you know Elon Musk and yeah. Stephen Hawking. These guys have written a letter. They've started an institute with like five million dollars, and everybody's freaked out. You know, so <laughs> it is. You're right. It is a good time to talk about. It. I think. Um, one of the things John McCarthy taught me, and for those of you who are listening who don't know that uh, long background of AI, John McCarthy was uh, somebody that's considered a founder of AI, so he's got some interesting insights. He said, if it's useful. So whether or not people put emotions and deeper autonomic functioning in, say, a neural net, or as you call it, deep, deep learning, and so... So the question is really um, something that I I brought this idea of the fourth law of robotics. So Isaac Asimov, in his science fiction story, created these three laws of robotics, which is intended to set the behavioral limits on what we can expect and how morally and ethically a a robot in our presence would behave. Um, the fourth law of robotics that I proposed was basically the idea is the idea that what you see is what you get. So if we are going to, and we are going to have a lot of different kinds of AI systems. Um, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you pick out some food, there's a label on it and the label tells you, you know, so many calories, the additives, things like that. And people fought hard to get those laws in place. I think it would be useful to have, instead of trying to control what ends up happening, because I think that's going to be very difficult. Instead, if we simply have an awareness as a person, like, well, this robot has no emotional intelligence, so it has a low, what you might call EIQ. Yep. So what am I dealing with? You, you don't really know. And that's why I thought the fourth law of robotics 
what you see is what you get could be useful because if we we don't know what's inside a robot we can't predict the behavior if there's a label or something that's helpful or if we you know like a policeman a policeman dresses in a certain way recognizably a doctor dresses in a certain way an airline stewardess dresses in a pilot and it's helpful to us it's useful to us to be able to understand who we're dealing with and what we can expect from them when there's a falseness about that it's it's an impersonation and it's you know it's illegal in a lot of circumstances because it can hurt people yeah so i think maybe it's, it's sensible to think in that way about these things because there are going to be all sorts of different ways people manifest their interests in some people are interested in compassion and, and medical applications, companions, sex. Yeah. You know, let's don't forget sex. That, that's that's going to be one of the big monetary drives. You don't have to look at the number of packets on the internet that are purely for porn, and it's pretty much larger than almost anything, any other individual use of internet packets. So we know porn drives a lot that's of you know, monetary spend. Right? I mean, sex, and let me sell you something. You know, yeah. it's these two yeah. things, the ads and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. Um, we staged a kind of fun event at the shopping mall, the Stanford shopping mall. And it was a robot fashion show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I actually put I wish I'd seen that. You, did you YouTube video that? Uh, no, but I it's up on academia.edu. The Japanese have picked up on it. But the basic, it's just demonstrating that I took one robot and dressed it up in all different ways and looked at people's expectations and reactions to it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, dress it up as a, a businessman. And, and I can send you these pictures, you know, suit and tie, dress it up as a, a monk. Uh, and I have a science response. fiction story called The Robotic Priest um, that John <laughs> inspired. Uh, but so that's one possibility for how we deal with this. Um, the question of whether these things can do us harm is important, whether we're talking about robots, genetic modification, yeah, right. food modification, new medicines, even kinds of yoga. The, anything we want to use our common sense, use our gut, as you say, listen to the gut. And um, I don't think law has ever been ahead of technology so this is an issue for yeah. you know that's i think that's why people are all talking about it that that's the best thing i can come up with is you know the ability to control what scientists invent it's it's never i mean you know look at what happened in physics you know this is why these physicists have have, have freaked out they're like oh my god you know now there's like weapons that are are being roboticized yeah. and we're going to lose control. Yeah. Well, there is some extent that that's possible, but there's also just as much where we can take advantage of the fact that people have certain weaknesses, like they get tired, they get bored, they don't remember everything. There's a lot going on at once. We need more than one person and teamwork and communication, and robots are actually good at that kind of stuff. Yeah, look at the column of robots that's out there sampling the ocean right now, like you're saying, you know, a, a, a vertical swarm that's doing work that no human could or would or team of humans would be down there monitoring on a moment-by-moment -moment basis for the, until, you know, they wear out. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there are things that, that bots can do. I, I just think in terms of with Moore's Law and the fact that, uh, you know, the computing power doubles every pick the period, 12 months, 18 months, whatever, that we are going to end up with, as the graphs predict, you know, um, computers having the power of a human brain. And that there's every likelihood that, you know, it's computational density and reentrancy that allows for the emergence of consciousness. So at some point we might end up with self-conscious AI. We've built it kind of as a sociopath. That is, it has no heart. It's not connected to emotional computing it has no state of heart and the sorts of things that you've been talking about you know compassion intelligence in your work that that's the sort of thing we need to build into those more like a, a welding robot that's that's not at that level of complexity yeah who needs an emotional robot to do welding but if we're going to be interacting with robots like you said uh, in the pre-conversation you're talking about nordstrom's and 
uh, you, you want to mention that to the audience the the what's happening with you know the, the turning North- mannequins into uh, I guess <laughs> um well if you go to youtube and type in nordstrom robotics you'll find that they've really been focusing on more and more functionality from three years ago when they first had a graphical illustration of humanoid robots working in a field or uh, working as an emergency rescue. They're now looking at fine motor control in the hand and the shoulder and facial expressions. And that's, that is really, I'm sure so far back from where they are now because you know if you're a company you don't put out what you're doing right now because you've got competitors but there is um i think you do have a valid point about having architectures that do not take into account elements of care about other they're simply mechanically not, it's not really necessarily even mechanically, but it is certainly um, there's a heartlessness to it, literally, right? Mm. And um, mm. physically and literally. Yeah, but I I really think that you and I are from a culture that is very limited in how we think of the mind, mm. and if these architectures that are successful commercially are coming out of Japan or coming out of China even. You know, the Chinese character for mind is the same as for heart. Mm. They just don't think like we do. And it's only because I spent a lot of time um, studying Chinese medicine and, and, and learning from teachers from China and Tibet and Japan that I began to understand this about ourselves. Most of us um, are, you know, they talk about the the opaqueness of our ability to understand those cultures and i think that's a key is there is an inherent relatedness that connects everything from the way they look at nature to the way they look at each other and the only thing i know that would be helpful in the west is these labels Mm. i mean i think you're right i it depends on what the robot's doing certainly if they're around small children if they're in a nursing home it could be certain things will be very simple and they're simply going to be reporting what's going on in a particular environment. If they're not interacting with people, it's a different situation. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But we do have, we do have a lot of evidence now from the user experience studies like Cliff Nass and his group. Cliff has passed away now, but his research was very important in looking at the way we anthropomorphize with these gadgets that we interact with yeah, and the neuroplasticity effect as well. I mean, I just don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't think we are going to be interested in being around these bots that have limited cognition like that. It's not interesting. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the ones that just have IQ and don't have EQ, and uh, and and you know, call whatever you want to call the gut intelligence, um, you know, BQ, uh, but uh, for body intelligence, body quotient. Um, but the, yeah, I, I do agree. Although you know, the one the thing that I've noted from our work is that you know, go, going back to what Edward de Bono would call the Gang of Three, right? You know, going back to, to ancient Greek times. Um, Plato, Aristotle, etc., where Western, you know, the, the Western culture is very largely head-driven. You know, we we created um, philosophy, then science, and then technology, and it, it's kind of the head-brain uh, on steroids. It's the head-brain runaway. We, we are, if you look in our organisations, they're very head-gut oriented. Um, there's not a lot of heart, although with you know emotional intelligence, and there's been more focus and. And, and I think we are coming around now because of the, the insights of neuroscience looking at embodied cognition, etc. So we're, we're finally, finally returning home to it. But for a couple of thousand years, we've, we've ended up with a Western culture that's very much a head brain. And the success of the head brain to do its creativity mm-hmm. has been massively successful. And, you know, you say that they're not 
if, if we just looked at the IQ components, you know, a, a robot that was just incredibly IQ intelligent, it might not be that interesting. Although, look at how people are totally sucked into what the head brain can produce, you know, the visual experiences, the, the puzzles, the, the things that, that get the head brain focused and interested. Now, I think that's it's exactly what you're saying. I, mean, I think that's right. There is something, but you can, you can finesse it. You can fake these emotions. That's what sociopaths do, right? And, and they get into positions of power. They're overrepresented in senior leadership positions. They know what to say to empaths to get the impact mm. they want, and yet they don't feel the feelings themselves. Right? They're very mm. manipulative. I, th- I think you've made a huge, huge, huge observation, which is that um, our culture today comes from a culture back in, during the Greek time. And this is something that I became interested in because I didn't understand why emotions weren't part of a logic system in the beginning. Because mm. like, mm. that's what everything's based on is logic. Yep. And, and you probably know this from, from, from reading, but because you did mention the Gang of Three. So these are people who influenced the West's academic institutions for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they, uh, so Aristotle was of the opinion that knowledge was things that endured. It was the essence of mm. something. It wasn't an experience that was temporary. Yeah. It wasn't a feeling about something. It wasn't a relationship. It wasn't an everyday life thing. It was mm. only relationships between parallel lines. It was the stars. It was gravity. You know, these physical properties, yeah. the mathematics of those things could yes. endure. And they are enduring. But what we now, and those were okay as long as people weren't interacting with machines. Yeah. When we start to bring people into the picture, this is where we need something different. We have to redefine what we say knowledge is. Mm. And we have to go back, and that's why I started, I, I still struggle with this in emotion-oriented programming, which is how do we blend logic and affect together in a computational artifact? And I I have a paper right now that is coming out in the International um, Journal of Synthetic Emotion. And I, and I actually talk about this in, in one of my sections is the definition of how of knowledge is based on ancient ideas that are no longer... It, women were not allowed out of the house. Mm. They were not participating in politics. And they were the ones who were sort of involved in that world more. Guys had to sort of wear armor. To, I mean, this is... They're doing battle out there. Mm. Mm. And I don't know, I don't know, obviously, <laughs> what it's like to be a guy, but that's a pretty tough world. I wouldn't want my emotions out there. Yes, exactly. You almost have to switch off or, or armor, your, you know, use that word armor, armor your heart, your emotional space, you know, the leverage yeah. point for emotions in the body. You have, to, you have to firm that up. You have to armor it. You find ways of disconnecting or what in, in, in MBIT, in embraining, we would call a neural integrative constraint. You know, if you've got these three neural networks, there are constraints for integration. Um, and one of them is to, to, to block off one of the neural networks from communicating with the others. It's a constraint mm-hmm. from integration. You're no longer integrated. But it allows for certain emergent behavior. If you only head gut, it allows for you to come up with creative ideas and take courageous action to enact those ideas. Uh, Hitler was very good at that because, you know, if you, if you look at what Hitler did, it was very creative and you can't say it, that there wasn't a level of gutsy courage of the German people to go and take over, you know, attempt to take over Europe. What it lacked was deep compassion for all sentient beings. Mm-hmm. So it lacked the heart space. And, the, and this is what in our work we've seen is that decisions for, for decisions to be wise and ecological, uh, the wisest decisions come out of an alignment of head, heart, and gut. When you do behavioral modeling on humans who make incredibly wise decisions versus those who, you know, who are making uh, very unwise decisions, unecological decisions, you'll see there's a, either integration or a lack of integration in the latter case. So um, I do think that, there, that, that we are in a culture that's kind of head, brain, runaway now because of those gang of three and, and, and you know, all of the philosophical and, and what came out of that which is the, our science and technology. And we love our technology. I mean, I'm a technologist. I'm a, uh, 
I ran a research and development department for 10 years building automated computer-based systems to effectively replace workers, make the organization more productive, right? I was automating all of these uh, amazing systems that you, used to be done by humans, and to help the organization be more productive, we put in place you know, robots, Mm-hmm. And, and I designed them from the ground up, right? Because <laughs> it was in the early days. There was none of these things. I had to build a lot of the, the layers myself. So I spent 10 years doing that, but I felt bad about it because I watched people's lives be, you know, they couldn't do anything else. Now, so some of these people, that's all they'd ever done, right? They'd ran a bolt-making machine, and now I had a computer that ran a bolt-making machine. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a great job to do because it's incredibly creative and I got to see the fruits of my labors which increased productivity and was fantastic and some of those jobs are mind-bogglingly boring (laughs) Um, watching someone had a job just watching bolts come off the end of a bolt making machine and check where they had heads you know talk about the the perfect job for a um a a computer but where's that I I think there's a new job waiting for a lot of people and that is taking care of one another I don't mean that by, like, saying cookie a meal. I mean, there's new ways of understanding how we heal involving things like healing touch. Touch, yeah. And um, the the Veterans Administration here has just adopted it at a national level. There's something actually called healing touch, literally healing touch. And the nurses in America have started uh, a five-year credentialing program and that's giving them a billing code and everything to work with us in the hospitals. and um, To sit with somebody for 10 minutes and just touch their skin with compassion. Right. When you come to the person. And so part of it is, is healing yourself as you begin yeah. to be trained in these arts. But exactly with antibiotics breaking down, with stress becoming more and more um, like a culprit in so many diseases, the healing touch, the compassion, it actually chemically annihilates the stress chemicals. You know, the chemistry of love physically in a test tube will annihilate cortisol. And it's it sort of like, you know, has this proton electron effect. Mm. They cancel each other out. That's why Canada's trying to educate the population about reducing domestic violence mm. because it creates a lot of health problems yeah. immediately and then down the pipe. And those health problems interact with relationships because people go off to work and, you know, et cetera. And then that impacts how the relationships at work, not only in productivity, but therefore the health of other people. It's, it's like an entrainment system. And you shift one person and that one person isn't just shifted, but all of the relationships that they have at work and home, et cetera, um, in their society, it shifts as well. I just want to make one little point that uh, when you were talking about the models of the brain that are the, the deep learning systems that are being modeled after the brain. And there's a lot of talk about neurons, but I haven't heard people talking about glia. Yes. Okay. And for, yeah, for years, example, they were left out of the neural anatomy right. textbooks yeah. in medical yeah. school. Yeah. yeah. Glia are what do the kind of things you were talking about, the meta control, the constraints yeah. and things like that. And, yeah. When they looked at Einstein's brain, okay, you know, the slices and stuff they do, yep. they couldn't tell any real, yeah, any real difference in the, the neurons, right? It was the yeah. glia. Yeah. He had yeah. a lot of glia. Yeah, that's right. Astrocytes, microglia, they're all now being shown to be crucial and vital meta components in the overall, you know, gardening of the brain that thinks changes itself. Yeah. And, and these things have been shown to be in the heart and gut brains as well. And neuroplasticity is occurring there, plus the autonomic nervous system. And the, uh, the neuroplasticity of one is directionalizing the other. The autonomic nervous system expresses neurotrophic factors into the cardiac nervous system and shifts the, the growth of the neurons in the cardiac nervous system, both in the embryo and in the adult. You know, some of the research is coming out. So it's, it's one big, you know, it's what we call embraining for multiple braining, because we don't want to call it three brains, because that would be hubristic to think that we know exactly how many brains. We used to think we only had one. Now we've got three. Well, who knows what we'll discover? Just a couple of weeks ago, I saw a, a paper on the spinal column has now been shown to be an adaptive learning system. You know, so not a brain, but it does memory and learning in the spinal column alone, right? So it's, it's like we're uncovering new stuff all of the time. Mm. And, the bra- and the brain is a verb. Well, have you heard of this stuff called Feldenkrais? Oh, Absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. so uh, it's a 
there's a New York Times bestseller at the moment by Doidge, D-O-I-D-G-E. Yep. Yep. Norman. And there's a chapter in there, uh, and she will dance at her wedding. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but it's about a story of a, a girl that was born with only part of her brain. Yep. And the doctors, the, the Western doctors, first of all, the book itself is each chapter is about a person who the doctors did everything they could in, in the Western training system, but they healed. They healed in some other way. And the chapter about Feldenkrais, which is related to what you're saying about the spine and the adaptions mm. all over the body, it is based on this functional integration idea. They, they in fact, healed her through these Feldenkrais movements, which are about integrating the functional nervous system aspects of the body. Um, she did, in fact, dance at her wedding. She's got two degrees. And she's a social worker and she's happily married. And uh, so it is remarkable. We really need to hear from people like you who are talking about these functional integrations, the nervous system integrations. Thank you, Cindy. I really, really, really appreciate your time and, and passion and intelligence and the work you do. And thank you for being part of this interview. I, I would love to have another interview again. I, I think there's some really important conversations that need to be spread out into the world at the moment to get people I think that it, you know you're very like with your fourth law of robotics. I think there's there's some thinking that needs to be seeded into not just the AI community, but into the general population to reach a tipping point of expectation, because the world is massively changing. Uh, we are on you know an ex- exponential curve of change of the growth of knowledge in in the world, and we're near the asymptote right of of the exponential curve. So there is going to be massive change in the next five to ten years. Uh, constantly in the last couple of days, there's been uh, articles in Australian um, news, and it won't be just Australian news around the world, of the number of jobs, the people at university. They're saying 60% of the people doing university degrees right now are doing degrees that there won't be jobs for in five to ten years' time because they're being replaced by robotics. Whoa. Yes. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't know whether you saw the TED Talk. I don't remember the guy's name, but he's one of the leaders of deep learning, you know, out of, uh, I think it's Toronto University. And he was his prediction is that five years from now, you know, majority of jobs on the planet will be done by deep learning systems. Because when he looks at the eight, eight top jobs and deconstructs the competencies required, deep learning systems can do them as well as a human, if not better, and they improve with self-learning. So... Um, even if he's out by a factor of two, and but though with exponential change, you know, often we can't, we're not good at predicting how quick things change, and they change quicker than we thought. Let's say he's out by a factor of two, and it's ten years from now that the majority of service jobs, etc., are done by deep learning systems and mm-hmm. robots connected to them. It's it's that's a massive perturbation in society if our economic systems, um, you know, are, which are predicated and based on people exchanging time and intelligence. You know, for money. So if there are no jobs, it is going to increase stress. Therefore, the health issues you were talking about. So I really think it's you know what your work and what you're talking about with AI goes to the heart of how no pun intended of how we need to focus how we think about building intelligencing systems to replace humans. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I just you know I, I so value your papers and what you're doing and the voice that you've brought, and I can only. Thank you for all those times people patted you on the head over the years and went, yeah, 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 nice stuff, emotional computing, yeah, yeah, go away in the corner and just keep doing whatever you're doing. Um, and, and yet, you know, from my perspective, and your work is, I, I think, really, really crucial um, and at the heart of where society needs to be focused right now on these massive exponential changes. And we need to directionalize this somehow. And I think your your work, your research, and your voice is one that needs to be promulgated really widely, not just in the AI community, but so that generally the zeitgeist of humanity starts expecting that the technology will have these things built into it. And that would directionalize corporations and organizations that are funding, you know, the Googles, etc., and, and the, the Chinese companies that are funding the, the work on these, these systems, deep learning and otherwise, um, mm. systems of AI, that if they, they all started to uh, get that sense, it's a bit like you know voting politicians in. Politicians will do what they think the, the you know the constituents are going to expect them to do, so they'll get voted back in. I think organisations will start putting focus on things that if, if generally people were expecting this, 
And so uh, I, I do think there's a danger of building AI, like human-level intelligence and beyond AI that isn't compassionate. And, um, and I think humanity has the chance to bootstrap the ultimate bodhisattva, shall we say, from Buddhist terms. Um, <laughs> you know, if you could get something that is way beyond human intelligence and comes from a deep place of compassion built within its architecture, then uh, I, I think you know, the dangers of the three laws of robotics. And we've all seen the movies, iRobot and you know, various sci-fis that explore. Ex Machina. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. The dangers of trying to get some simple rules that would lead to, you know, n- no harm to humans uh, in robotics. It's not that simple. But the sorts of things you're building in into your architectures with the emotional architectures um, and state of heart and compassion and intelligence, I think actually give us the best chance of, of producing something that, you know, goes beyond the three or four laws of robotics. So uh, thank you very much for the work you do. That was a long way just to say thank you and to highlight to our listeners the importance of the sort of work you're doing. And I'd really love it if people would um, spread this message far and wide. There's a really important time right now in the world and how what we're, we're bootstrapping into our world, an emergence that we can't predict and so we need some important seeds, and I think your work is one of those important seeds. Thank you. And I'm really happy to talk to you because you're doing something very interesting with this um, multiple brain theory, and um, I think there's definitely an important new way of looking at our bodies and the way we connect with each other, and it's just it's been too long that we haven't gotten it together to solve some of our longstanding problems. I want to say thank you very, very much for connecting and, and, uh, and doing this interview. I really, really appreciate it.